0: Let me begin by putting a quote that I came across, and I don't even know who it's from. Um, And it reads this, All delights imply repulsions. All likes necessitate dislikes. A strong taste for God implies a strong distaste for the ungodly. And the more refined my taste, the more exacting becomes my standard. And the more I appreciate God, the more I shall depreciate the godless. Uh, we're going to come back to that quote at the end of the sermon a little bit later, but turn this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. Two weeks today from today is Easter. Uh, we celebrate Really, which is the very core of the gospel. What the gospel is all about is this this mission of God, where He sent His Son to die for us, with the opportunity of to reunite ourselves back to God through the Son. And it's a holiday that calls us to remember, to worship. It calls us to ponder and revel in the work that God has done. And and the challenge with Easter, especially maybe for me, uh, maybe this is for you, I don't know, but oftentimes once you get past that Easter meal that we plan together, it, it just seems to fade, doesn't it? See, the challenge is how do we live our lives in such a way where the gospel, the cross, the work of Christ is centered to our lives every day? For the next three weeks, I want to connect the cross, the gospel, with three different concepts that we're going to be looking at, and the first one this week. But my hope is that as we dig into these, that it will push us to celebrate Christ and to understand God in a way, and maybe relate differently as a people, relate to God differently even as we look at these concepts but the first one for today comes out of this text, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now I'm going to begin by reading in verse 4. Look at how it goes. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. about our identity that we we need to unpack a bit today. But I need to connect something here back to Matthew chapter 16 to begin. And and I want to put that verse on the screen. This is an exchange between Peter and Jesus. And look how it goes. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, understand... This idea of a rock and a stone is very important, and many Catholics believe this. That Matthew 16 teaches us that Peter was the first pope, but frankly, when it comes to First Peter and what he writes, I think this indicates that really that Rome was in error. And most scholars would look at 1 Peter 2 and they would argue that it's a commentary on one of the, that exchange between Jesus and Peter. And it reveals something about who really is the rock and really what that means. But here's where I got to go a little bit farther, even with this issue of the rocks or the stones, because this is a theme. Rocks and stones, I don't know if you realize it, run all throughout scripture. The first one actually starts in Genesis 49. I'll put that on the screen. It reads this, yet his bowl remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the mighty hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now the mighty one of Jacob, what's it referring to there? It's God himself, that God is a rock. But again, if you fast forward even a few years in Scripture, and you come, for example, to Moses taking Israel through the desert, they needed water to survive. They were hot, they were thirsty. and remember what happened at Mount Horeb. A rock. Moses strikes a rock. But Paul gives a commentary to that picture. In 1 Corinthians 10, talking about the rock, look at how it reads, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and are all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. See, this idea of Christ being the rock is so important. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 32, five times, God is referred to as the rock there. See, this this imagery of a rock or stones is sprinkled throughout the scriptures over and over. Daniel, when he interprets the dream, talks about a stone and a rock there. But even Jesus, as he refers to himself as the rock, Look at Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's, and it's marvelous in our eyes. See, over and over again in Scriptures, this idea of a rock and a stone is very important. But let me just dig a little bit, and I'll come back to this in terms of this concept, but let me give you the context of 1 Peter chapter 2. When you go back to chapter 1, or even the whole book here, this letter, it's a letter that he writes to this church to encourage them. He wants them to have hope. Understand suffering and persecution is going on in that early church. And one of the ways that he comes to encourage them is to remind them of the blessings and the truths that which they have experienced. Now now let me show you one of those truths that he comes, which is really a form of encouragement here. He reminds of this in verse 23 in chapter 1. Look how it reads. He tells them, You have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding Word of God. He's saying, guys, God is working in your hearts. The Holy Spirit has rebirthed you. The Holy Spirit has been put into your hearts. See, He wants to remind them of some things that will get them through these hard times. And he goes a little farther because in chapter 2 there's just a slight turn and he calls them then in the midst of persecution, suffering, guys, you got to grow up in your faith. Spiritual change needs to happen if you're going to handle what's going on in the world. If you're going to survive, again, deeply, that world was deeply antagonistic to the gospel, to Christ. And he wants them to be, to have power to make it through, to not turn and run. But Peter then presents a truth here that is so important to them and it applies to us as well. And it's this, because God has rebirthed you, you're born again. God sees you now differently. He's saying, as he writes this letter, remember the rebirth. Now, something has changed the way that God sees you. See, once we're born again, we are transformed. And folks, I don't know if you really get captured by this. We have a new identity. And he reveals this to this group that he's writing to. And it's passed around through all the other Christians. For your sermon notes, if you're taking these, I said it this way. This new identity of the gospel, salvation has transformed us to become living stones that are part of a spiritual house. Salvation occurred, the gospel worked, and now we are living stones and being built into a house. Look at verse 4 and 5 again, where it states this, As you come to him, a living stone, there's Christ, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ was the living stone. And now you, because of transformation, because of the Holy Spirit, you now also are living stones because of His work. And if we know Christ, folks, as our Savior, we now, I don't think we see this, but we are living stones and are being built up into a spiritual house, a new dwelling. And the cornerstone is Christ. Now, it's not a physical house, but it's a dwelling, actually where God is residing. But this concept that Peter's trying to get them is so important for us And you go, why? There's a couple reasons what I think we default to. Let me put those on the screen. I think all too often, we keep believing that salvation is only about the blessing of keeping us out of hell. Oh, Jesus saved me. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. And is that a blessing? Yes. But then I think the second one, I think we keep believing that salvation is about making our lives run smooth isn't it we we don't want persecution we don't want suffering to come but understand that peter's saying guys there is a radical transformation that's taken place and this picture though i got to remind you one thing you they are stones being built into a house but understand this it isn't individual stones it's not Jesus in my house that's being built. This is about Jesus and us collectively belonging together. Together, we are being built up into the dwelling of God. Paul also understands this concept. Matter of fact, as he writes to the church of Ephesus, look at Ephesians 2:19. how he states it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. There's that belonging to a group of people built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a temple in the Lord. And this last verse, in him you are also being built together, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now we should dig at that sometime because a profound concept that we are in a dwelling place where God is. But the result of the gospel working, a spiritual house is being built made out of living stones. Christ is the cornerstone and it reveals now, though, how God views us, how he looks at us. But but I gotta go back here because salvation, and I gotta push this, was never meant to be just about how God looks at me. It's about us together. It isn't about me and my faith. It's producing a house, it's it's building a house. Frankly, of millions and millions of people are living stones and he's building this house together. And Christ is the cornerstone that ties it all together. Now, i got to point out one thing. The idea of living stones, it's a little bit of a slam, I believe, against that culture of the day. If you remember, sometimes they would actually make gods out of stone and worship them. And the prophets would come along and say, hey, make your God talk and do something, and the stone was just sitting there. But in this picture, Peter's going, no, these stones are living. See, this is about worshiping the cornerstone, a living stone, and we are now living stones. Once we were a dead stone. You ever thought of it that way? We were dead stones, and now we're a living stone but he's looking to encourage them. He's saying, guys, in the midst of suffering, you got to view yourself differently. In the midst of suffering, remember what God has done. I think the challenge for us is that when suffering comes for us, what's the tendency? I I think we want to turn and we want to run from suffering. God, take it away from my life. And Peter's saying, no, understand first that God has changed you and you are to be living stones being built together and yes, even in a corrupt world. Do you see how he's trying to get them to live differently in that world? But you think of our culture as well. We want to run from persecution. We want to run from suffering because it's really no fun. And persecution sure won't make me happy. And I think we have this subtle belief that we have a right not to suffer. And you go, no. So what we do is we tend to isolate ourselves and isolate ourselves from the world, anybody that persecutes us but Peter he says no but he, he he gives another level to this because in the midst of suffering there's another hard and important truth here Peter knows that Christ and the gospel as it goes forth it will be an offense to people for those that don't believe look at 7 and 8 so the honor now what does that mean there The honor of being living stones, being a house that's built, being priests, is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. Look at this the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone in verse 8 and a stone of stumbling. The world looks at Christ and they stumble over it, and it becomes a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. See, so he's saying, guys, you have honor. Remember that. But people, remember this, people will stumble over Christ. They will stumble over the gospel. And frankly, I think it goes to this, is some people are proud of that. We live in a culture where they take pride in rejecting Christ. Pride in rejecting the gospel and his love. But it also reveals to us that something will occur to those that stumble over Christ. And so I need to remind you of this, especially on judgment day. Look at verse six. I got to point something out from this verse. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be. Put to shame. Now, what's the, the direct application for us? It's this the day when we stand with Christ, if we have put our faith in him, if we're a child of God, there will be no shame. God is gonna go, welcome, welcome, you are mine. Come be with me. But the opposite here is also true. See, for people who've rejected Christ thrown them away, they don't care. Folks, there will be great shame on that day. And I think what he's referring to, even that shame, is you go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned and they, God comes, guys, what did you do? You know what the response of the, at that moment was? Deep shame. They tried to hide from God because they knew they stood guilty. And one day, people are going to be accountable and they will experience just what Adam and Eve did when they enter into eternity. And that won't be a fun day for those people. But let me give you just another layer here as well. don't have time to get real deep on this one, but not only do people reject the gospel, stumble over Christ the stone but they actually will move to a place where they will begin to persecute you because of the gospel because of your stand for Christ willing to say up I am a follower of Jesus and Peter is preparing these people to suffer and he calls them even in the midst of that to respond appropriately to live in a certain way when suffering takes place. He's saying because we're living stones, when we are persecuted, we are called to treat other people that are persecuting us with respect and honor and love. See, that's the rest of chapter 2 and, and, and chapter 3. It goes on to say, slaves, when you're Masters are harsh. How do you respond? With grace, with love, respect. You're first in Nero in chapter 2. Give him honor. And then it flows into chapter 3, where it actually speaks to husbands and wives whose spouses are not very nice. Give them respect and honor. Let me show you a verse. In 21, that's the summary. I think that's going to be more and more true for us. 221, for to this you have been called. What's that? Called? What's this? Suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now he goes on to the rest of the two there, where Christ, when they reviled him, it says he did not revile in return and he entrusted himself to the Father. It's such a profound picture. He had to depend on his Father not to revile. You see, there's an example for us that one day, folks, we may have to suffer for our faith. And we got to respond appropriately. Not running, but giving honor and love. And I think it teaches us this. And, and and it's in a growing way and we live in a post-Christian world expect rejection expect it and, and I think we got to teach our kids to do it as well but let me give you another piece of this identity that we need to embrace number two in our new identity we now share in the life and the ministry of Christ look at verse 5 here You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. But look at this. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now again, in here you catch this. This isn't singular. We're all a part of the same house. But we are all a part of now this idea of the priesthood. It doesn't say you're an individual priest. It says that we're one of a collective group that brothers and sisters are all priests in the priesthood. No single priests. There's a pun on that one, okay? Um, You'll get it later. But part of the group of priests, there's a fraternity of priests. We're part of the fraternity of priests. And not just a priest, a holy priesthood to work within the house that God is building. And Peter develops this just a little bit more in verse 9. Look how it goes, part A. But you are a chosen race. Now you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. See, even in verse 9 again, you catch the corporateness of this. And too often, again, we still default to this, oh, it's Jesus and me, yippee. I go, no, no, no. We are a group of people who by grace have been made, made a nation of God. We are important to God as a group of people. But let me ask you a question here. Do we ever stop and look around for other, at other believers and say, you are a fellow priest a royal priest, a holy priest. And you realize that we even get a secret handshake. I'll tell you what it is another time. But I hope you're understanding, embracing this, that Peter's going, God views us differently. He sees us collectively. He sees us as a holy possession, a holy nation, a group of priests. Let me go to verse 10 here. Look at once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, salvation is not just legally satisfied with just a new kind of theoretical position of being saved. There's real change. We're living stones, we're God's people. And before faith, it said, this verse says, We didn't have mercy. And when salvation comes, God is filling us with his mercy and grace. And we were before not a people connected to God. And now we are God's people, a nation. And it's the us. Folks, the nature of the church, I I think, is hurt deeply when we keep viewing ourselves as individuals. And too often people focus on the church as individuals. And churches, what about for me, my needs, my desires, ministry and programs even, it's about my family. And it's not thinking about the us And frankly, what happens is when that type of thing creeps into us, it's really a very subtle type of consumerism. And when it becomes embedded in the church, the church becomes ineffective. But verses 5 and 9 imply we have a new identity, we're living stones, we're a household of God, but it's this as well. We have a purpose. And this idea is that there's transformation and there's action involved in it as well. You are now my people for something. Look at verse 9 again. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, we have received so much. We're called to be active priests in the kingdom that's being built. We are to share in the ministry of what Christ is doing. Now, how do we do that? If you're taking notes in the bulletin, I said it this way. One of the things that we share is by living out our new identity with words, words that give life and action, serving to build the kingdom of God. Do we believe that? See, there's an accountability aspect to that. Let me put up Luke 12 on the screen where Jesus states this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And for the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked for. See, we're held accountable for this process, a new identity, then what? See, salvation is not just about I'm being in the family of God, my new identity, now I get the secret handshake to eternal life. But we just stop there. Too many Christians stop there. No, we are to be messengers that proclaim the excellencies of God. See, Christ wants us to be more than priests that just sit and twiddle our thumbs in thanksgiving. Giving her love to Christ is more than just, oh, thank you, Jesus, I want to worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Love is not static. It implies action. In a marriage, okay, I could I could do this with my wife. She's not here. She was at the first service. But like I say, every day I could get up and say, oh, Deanna, I love you so much. I thank God for you. And I get up the next day, oh, Deanna, I, I love you so much. And I could say it over and over again how much I love you. But if I never serve her, if I never die to things and sacrifice for her, you really can't say to me, I'm loving her. See, unless we're willing to lay down our lives for another, it really isn't love. Love with words and no service is not love. Love always costs something. So just focusing on the blessings, one can miss this mission and the so what. See, growing up in our faith is much more than just, oh, thank you, God, thank you, God. It's about the ability to love God and give away the good news of the kingdom, to proclaim the mercy of God, to sing of His excellencies to the world, to express them to people, to go and make disciples. That's the call in our lives. See, being born again was never intended to be just self-centered and self-worshiping to God. It was never meant to be passive. But let me point out in phrase nine to proclaim the excellencies of God. Let me dig there a second. Because do we do this primarily to those who are already blessed or to those that don't know Christ, that are a stumbling block. They stumbled over Christ. Who do we proclaim those to? And I think the tendency at times is, I'm going to proclaim the excellencies of God, but still, it's to the people who are already blessed. To the living stones already. And I think the challenge in churches is that we work so hard developing a church that's bent towards serving the saved. And yes, we're called to gather, we're called to equip. I understand that, and we must do that. But we got to figure out how to equip people to proclaim the excellencies of God to people who never heard them. You see, if as a body, if we give our best and primary energy within the church, to only to already blessed people. The only people we will attract will be the already blessed. Do you catch that? We'll only reach those that are already their living stone. The goal of a church is not to just collect living stones. The goal is to take it and reveal the excellencies of God to people in this world to the lost. And one of the ways that we need to learn how to do it, frankly, is to tell our stories about how God has made us into living stones. All of us need to come to that place where we can tell people our story of God working in our lives. Matter of fact, some of you need to practice those stories. Up here, I'm looking for people that need to share a testimony and tell how God worked and became, how they became a living stone. Even on Easter, I'd love to find a couple people. See, but the challenge is, if we can never tell our stories, even amongst the blessed, how are we going to learn to do it for those that aren't blessed? That's the dilemma I think we have. God is working. We need to grapple with the extent of that work. But let me just give you a couple more thoughts here. For your notes, a couple more here. We need to shift from dabbling in our faith to full devotion toward Christ. Man, we need to run toward Jesus. Throw off the weight and the sin that entangles and pursue Him. And when we do that, it, proclaiming the excellencies of God won't be hard. It'll be exciting. See, we've we got to stop dabbling. And, and I think the challenge is too often we want to pause in our faith and just kind of dabble in our faith and our love for him. And you go, no. But let me give you an, another one, that third bullet there. In our prayer life, I think this. We need to shift from praying, God, touch my life and make it better. We want God to smooth our lives out. But we need to do this. God, ask. we need to ask God to fill my life and make it useful. Isn't that a better way to go? If we're going to exclaim the excellencies of God. God, would you change me in such a way and fill me with power so that I will be used by you every day no matter where I'm at. Whether it's at home, whether it's here at church, whether it's in your, where you work, whether in your family dynamics. All of those things we are called to be used by God because we have a new identity. But let me come back to that quote that I put on the screen to end here. Look how it reads again. All delights imply repulsions. You know, when you really delight in somebody, there's, you realize there's things you don't like. All likes necessitate dislikes. A strong taste for God implies a strong distaste for the ungodly. The more that we begin to fall in love with Christ, the more that ungodliness becomes repulsive. And that last sentence, the more I appreciate God, the more shall I depreciate the godless. As I was pondering that quote this week, when we get captured by the love of God, when when we begin to embrace our new identity in the cross, we become enamored by Him. We, We understand we become His possession. When we learn to relish mercy, it becomes easier. When we delight in His grace and mercy, when we know Christ, when we, it becomes easy to become a priest working in the kingdom of God. But here's, I think, our dilemma, is that oftentimes, even dealing with sin, is that we want to deal with sin without God becoming bigger. God, get rid of my sin... But my relationship with you, God, stays the same. And I think that's the challenge for us. Is that God has to become bigger in our lives. And when he does that, he becomes attractive and sin begins to slide away. When we begin to delight in God, we turn from sin and we just look to serve him. And we begin to proclaim his excellencies to this world. Let me ask you to cl- in closing, do you believe that you are a living stone that are being built up into a house that God is going to dwell in, that is dwelling in, that we have communion with Him because of what He's done in us and we now, something is different. He sees us different. We're a royal priest, a holy priest. We're his nation, we're his people, we're his possession. Do we hold on to that? But as we savor that, as we delight in that, all of a sudden it compels us to go, okay God, you want me to give out your excellencies to this world. And that's what he wants us to do to love him, to relish in what he's done, how he sees us different, but never to be static. And we move into this world and proclaim Jesus. Let's stand and pray.